Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another edition of Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Sanfilippo, at Ant San Philly on Twitter, joined, as always, by Crossing Broad, Phillies writer, Bob Wankel, at BW Crossing Broad, and we're fired up tonight, Bob. I, I know I am, okay, and I know that I'm going to maybe maybe lose it a little bit tonight, and not because the Phillies are playing poorly, they did. They had a terrible weekend series. And not because I'm going to sit here and say, oh, I'm mad at the manager, even though I don't like some of the things that he's doing. You know who I'm mad at, Bob? I am mad at the Philadelphia Phillies fan today. I am mad at the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, or I'm not going to blame the, the specific beat writers. But I am mad at people in the media who are talking about the Phillies today. I am mad at the talking heads on radio today because nobody – Frigging gets it. Are you upset that Jake Arietta had something really mean to say about Scott Kingery? I mean, it was awful saying that he had to go to second base with that ball <laughs> yesterday. How dare he? How that dare may he? shatter the kid's confidence. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to be able to come back from such a harsh criticism. <laughs> yeah, Bob, I'm right with you, man. I, I don't get it. And, and we're going to get into this and we're going to break down Jake Arietta and we'll talk about it. But uh, yeah, I'm right off the top. I don't understand it. I do not understand the things that I heard today in response to Arietta's comments after the game yesterday. Yeah, but let's let's dive into it just to, just for a second. I mean, ca- just in case anybody's been sleeping under a rock, um, Jake Arietta following the Phillies game uh, Sunday, uh, in which they lose six to one, um, ending a terrible three game sweep um, in San Francisco, in which they scored one run, set a major league record, becoming becoming the first team in major league history to get uh, score just one run in a series and have that run come from a pitcher hitting a home run. It's the only run that they score. It's the first time it's ever happened, okay? In in 120-some years of statistical uh, tracking in Major League Baseball, first time it's ever happened. That's pretty pathetic. So they have a terrible series against the Giants, and Jake Arrieta comes out after the game, and he's frustrated. You know, a guy pitched five really good innings, and it kind of got away from him in the sixth inning, and he's mad at, at a lot. He's mad that the team's not hitting. He's mad that the team... Uh, the, the, the shifts are, are causing them problems because the Giants smartly hit it where they weren't. Um, and he's mad at the defense behind him. He's mad at the, the attitude that the team has. And he came out on television and in front of reporters and just basically said, this is bullshit. And he could have been more right. And he targeted everybody. He took some blame himself. Maybe not as much as he could have, but he took some blame himself. He targeted, he mentioned Scott Kingery. He directed it to the manager and to the management and the coaching staff. He said nobody's hitting. He basically came out and said, yo, wake the hell up, guys, because this could snowball really quickly. In baseball, you could fall out of a race in, in a snap of the fingers. Especially when you look at the schedule that they have coming up. And I think that this was said... A lot, and and again, if if you've missed this, the schedule through the remainder of June is brutal. 25 games in a row against teams with winning records, and I think that he identified this as a turning point in this season and said, if we don't get it together, this thing can spiral out of control. For all the goodwill that they've generated and and the positive vibes that they've gotten to start this season – it will quickly evaporate if they continue the play that they demonstrated through three games in San Francisco. It wasn't good enough. He recognized that it wasn't good enough, and he knows that if this team has any postseason aspirations this year, it has to change, and it has to change now. And my thing is this. The people that were critical of Jake Arrieta for what he said after the game on Sunday afternoon, 
what this is the guy that you want to have say this. This is the one guy in that locker room that has the clout to say what he said. I mean, the guy, it's, it's, and it's not just based off a of past resume. He's top 10 in the NL in war amongst pitchers right now. He's top 10 in the NL in ERA, 266 ERA. The guy did win a Cy Young three seasons ago. He won a World Series in 2016. And you brought him in here to mentor this pitching staff and be a clubhouse leader and call guys out and show them the right way to do it, and he does that. And then all of a sudden, everyone wants to throw their hands up in the air and say, well, he should have taken more responsibility. He took enough responsibility. He said, I didn't get the job done in the sixth inning. I know that. But then he lists all these other problems, and he's right. And that's the thing. He was right. Nothing that he said was incorrect. None of it was a stretch. None of it was off base. He knocked it out of the park. I mean, he did it. He actually knocked it out of the park in the third inning. And he knocked it out of the park in the, after the game, too. I mean, he was spot on. No, absolutely was. And and there's not you, you will not hear me criticize Jake Arrieta's comments in any fashion whatsoever. I and here are the few. Let me let me go over just a couple of the things that people were criticizing him about today, because I got to listen to uh, sports ra- sports radio a little bit today. I got to you know be on Twitter and got into a, a, a Twitter battle with Joe Giglio. Um, who I think is a Gabe Kapler apologist and will look for anything he can do to, to belittle the wrong person just to defend Gabe Kapler, which he's doubled down. He's a, he's doing a double down because he was a big proponent of Doug Peterson when everybody hated Doug Peterson to you know prior to last year, and, and then look what happened with the Eagles, and so now he's going to say, well, I'm going to do the same thing with Gabe Kapler, and you know that's fine. You can you can take that he can take that track if he wants to, uh, but I got into a big dis- big dispute with him on Twitter today, and I read. You know, reading stories. Look, even a guy I greatly respect, who's a great friend of mine, uh, and Glenn Mack now, he also felt that way as well. And he put it out there um, uh, on Twitter as well that what Arietta did was wrong to Scott Kingery. And I think it's because I'm not I'm not convinced that any one person who's criticized what Arietta said about Kingery has really listened to the entire question and interview. Because it was incorporated into a much longer answer. And yes, he did say, yeah, Scott Kingery should have thrown the ball to second base. But it was not meant to say, in a way to say, boy, this kid doesn't know what he's doing out yeah, there. It, it wasn't an indictment of his, his skill level. It wasn't a character assassination. It wasn't no. that he's a dog. I mean, it was just that he should have threw the ball to second base, you know? I, like, I, yeah, I think that, and, and this is this is how I interpreted it, because of how it fit into the whole, his whole narrative. It was that he was talking about the shifts and how they're hurting the Phillies. They're the worst shifting team in baseball. And he's basically sitting there saying, if you had Scott Kingery at his normal shortstop position on that play, he fields it, and then he can throw to first base and get the runner out without a problem. But the fact that he's shifting up the middle and he's back behind the bag and has to run an extra 25 feet to get to that ball, there's no way he's throwing out the runner at first. The only play he has is at second base. So that's why he should have thrown to second. That's what he's saying. I think, if anything, he's defending Kingery in a lot of ways because he's saying the kid, the kid's not a shortstop. He's 
breaking his back to play the position, and we're playing him in, in spots that shortstops don't normally play, and they have to make these quick decisions what to do with the ball, and they're making the wrong decision because you don't have him playing in the right spot. That's what Jake Arrieta is saying. That's the message that he's trying to send his manager and to his organization, general manager, analytics team, coaching staff, everybody. That's the message, not, oh, Scott Kingery, you screwed up. I'm going to ask you a, a really – this is going to seem like a stupid question, but I promise you I'm going somewhere with this. Okay. Is Jake Arrieta a good pitcher? <laughs> yes, he's a very good okay. pitcher. And you would agree that he's had a great deal of both personal and, and team-wide success in recent years of his career, correct? Correct. Cy Young winner, and he's won a World Series. Okay, and I, I just spoke a moment ago about why that kind of gives him the, the clout or the cachet to say what he said. Yes. Well, let me, let me flip this around the other way. It wasn't so long ago, back in 2010, when Jake Arrieta was a 24-year-old struggling starting pitcher with the Baltimore Orioles. And his rookie year, 4.66 ERA in 18 games started. His second year, 22 games started, 5.05 ERA. 2012, his third year as a 26-year-old, 6.20 ERA in 18 games started with the Orioles. This is a guy that, that knows what it's like to come up to the major league level and struggle. So it, it's not like Jake Arrieta burst onto the scene as a kid and was immediately a fantastic pitcher. I think he's acutely aware of what Scott Kingery is, is going through right now. He knows what it's like to come up with, with expectations for, for people to look at you and say, this guy has a lot of talent. He's going to excel right away. I mean, he's been down this road before. He's familiar with what Kingery has experienced here. And I think that he's probably sensitive to that. This was not Jake Arrieta saying that this kid needs to get his head out of his ass. He's not getting it done. It, it's more just that he just didn't make the play that he should have made. That's one explanation. Or like you said, had he not been shifted or standing where he was initially positioned, he may have made that play. So when I, I look at Jake Arrieta and these accusations that he just unloaded, unfairly unloaded on Scott Kingery, I don't, I don't think that's the truth at all. And by all accounts, when you listen to reporters, you listen to teammates of his, he's a good guy. You, you hear that said about him quite a bit, and he's a good teammate. And that was part of the research that the Phillies did when they went out to go out and sign this guy back in March, that he was going to bring that element to the clubhouse. And I, I think it's really weird that he goes out and does the exact thing that you expect him to do, and now everybody's all up in arms about it. Don't we want our athletes to be candid? and honest with us. Isn't that what we always scream for, that we're sick and tired of hearing the same cliche, you know, one game at a time, keep trying to get better, you know, nonsense that we've heard for years and years and years. They hear, isn't it refreshing to have a guy who you sit there and say, you know what, we've sucked, and we got to figure it, we got to yeah, fix well, it. Let me, let me ask you this. If you, if you would have stepped out there after that game on Sunday, after they scored one run in three games, and he said, that's baseball, you know, it's just, it's one of 162, and, and sometimes that's just the way things go, you know, sports. And then he stares blankly at the reporters. Wouldn't people have been just as upset about that? Yes. You know, uh, you know th what do you mean? That's, that's exactly, we don't like that. You, you want that emotion. You want someone to say, I know that we're about to go to Wrigley Field for three games, three very important games, and then we're going to come back and we're going to play one of the best teams in the National League in the Milwaukee Brewers, and we have the Yankees this month, and we have it's, it's going to be a brutal stretch, perhaps yeah. a season-defining stretch. I want this guy to say, that's enough. 
what we just did for the last three games cannot happen anymore. No more. And, and, and to me, this was the perfect time to do it. And it wasn't just an isolated series. If you've been watching this team now for the last couple of weeks, they've had varying degrees of success. They've won some series. But you know that they're 6-10 and 10 in their last 16 games. They haven't hit consistently all season. And it's just, that's enough. It's time to say something. He didn't do it after two weeks. He didn't do it after a month. He sat there. He watched the season play out for, you know, 50-plus games. And he said, now's the time. This is the perfect time to do it. And, and I actually, when I look at the timing of the comments, that's part of the reason why I'm completely fine with it. I thought that it was, it was calculated. I thought that he considered what has just occurred and where they're headed. And he felt, now's the time. Yeah. And it was it was spot on. Now I'll give you another thing that people have complained about with him doing this. Um, well, you know, this is he comes out, and he has all this to say, but you know, he's the one who gave up six runs, and and uh, you know, he didn't really take any responsibility for it. Uh, blah 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 blah. And it's like, have you not looked at what this guy has done for you this year? I mean, seriously, even in this game, even in this game, he was. Five very good innings. He faced the minimum through five innings. Five innings. Okay. He'd given up some base runners, but three but got double three plays. Double plays. Yeah, 15 right batters in five innings, yeah. Okay. So, and at, after five innings, it's still only one nothing, and the only run is his home run. So in the sixth inning, okay, he gives up a couple of hits, and then the big, the big blow is the McCutcheon home run. It's a curveball. It's up. He hung it a little bit, but it was on the way. It was way. It was high and on the outer half. McCutcheon swings late, gets a piece of it, and it's like a lazy fly ball down the right field line. It just kind of kept carrying, carrying, and it just barely made it over the wall. It's one of those home runs where you're just going to sit there and curse it, right? Because it wasn't hit hard, it wasn't hit well, but somehow made its way out of the ballpark. And that's the difference in the game. You take that home run away, it's a 2-1 to one game. Is anybody complaining about Jake Arrieta's pitching if, if, it's, if he leaves after six innings and it's 2-1? to one? You no. know how many home runs he's given up this year in 64 and a third innings? Three. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and this was a, a fluke, cheapy home run that just scraped the top of the wall in, in a goofy park. And it, what are we going to do? Are we going to be upset with Jake Arrieta's performance? And I know that was something that was said today. I think that was – was that Joe Giglio that said that? Well, was here's, he, jo- here's Joe Giglio. This is, what, this is what got us riled up this morning because we were texting about it first. And then I went on Twitter and said, you know what, I, that's it. I got to get, get, get at this guy. He retweets – um, Bob Nightingale's uh, tweet. Uh, Bob Nightingale's tweet says Jake Arrieta seethes after the Phil- seethes after Phillies get swept by the by the Cubs, which they didn't. They got swept by the Giants, scoring one run in 29 innings and a home run by him, saying the Phillies are one of the worst in the league in shifts. We need some accountability all the way around. If that if there isn't, I'll make sure that there is. So Giglio retweets that and says maybe Jake Arrieta who is 78th among starting pitchers in strikeout percentage, could actually get swings and misses. The shifts wouldn't be the issue. You know what, dude? Learn the frigging game, okay? Because guess what? You can be a very successful pitcher in baseball without striking everybody out all the time. Okay, you could be a control pitcher and induce weak contact and be incredibly successful. Greg Maddox made a Hall of Fame frigging career out of this, okay? Jake Arrieta is an excellent pitcher, and is I think I, I, if I you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think he's top five in baseball in weak contact. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe that is the, uh, the statistic. I, I, I think he was like third or fourth, and you know I'm, I'm, that's why I said I think he's top five. 
Um, it was third or fourth going into the game yes, on Sunday. Um, you got to be kidding me if you're going to sit there and rip Arietta for not striking out enough guys. That's not bait. I'm sorry. I know strikeouts are up now and they're in vogue, but if you're a pitcher who knows how to pitch and can get guys out without having to strike them out, because guess what? Strike You strike out a lot of guys, your pitch count goes up through the roof, and you got to be pulled in the fifth and sixth inning, and your bullpen gets taxed, okay? So maybe Arietta can go seven or eight innings, strike out a few less guys, but still get as many outs because he knows how to pitch professionally to batters. Yeah, let's talk Take about this real quick. He, he's actually, uh, the, the numbers that I have, he's actually 16th in terms of hard hit rate, but 20.9%, extraordinarily low. Um, he's actually inducing ground balls like he was back in his peak years, 2015, 2014-15 with the Cubs. Um, 56.3% of the contact has resulted in ground balls this season. It was 56.2 in his Cy Young year uh, when he was just out of out of this world. So he's right in line with that. The strikeouts are down. Uh, he was at 8.71 last season. He had been up around 9, 9.5 in his peak seasons. He's down to 6.16 Ks per nine this year. So, you know, Joe's right in the sense that he's not generating the swings and misses. But when you look at the overall production and where he's at, like we talked about, top 10 ERA, top 10 in terms of war for pitchers, uh, weak contact, um, been much more of an efficient pitcher, getting ground balls, generating a lot of double plays. This is If you sign him in March and you knew that this is what you were going to get at this point in the season, you would have been to the moon over it. Absolutely. So this isn't like a guy that, that has had some past success and he's not really doing his job this year and now he's calling out people. You know, you know what this would be like? It would be like Carlos Santana calling out somebody right now. You know, yeah. a guy that – and this isn't a, a, really a knock on him, but this would be saying like a guy that, that has had a ton of success that isn't playing really well right now and, and he's just unloading on his teammates. This is a guy that, that – has done it and is currently doing it. So I don't really want to hear about, you know, strikeouts. I know, and, and, right? And Joe's defense. I mean, Joe's not here and, and I don't want to I don't want to pile on Joe too much, but I mean I, I certainly disagree with his premise there. I don't I don't think right. that that's a, an accurate assessment of, of what's going on. Yeah, I don't care if he's not here to be honest with you. So uh Arietta <laughs> Arietta okay, here you go. All right. Just to add on to this. The guy, even though his strikeout rate is down, his whip's 1.17, okay? His ERA is 2.66, and he's allowed only three home runs. So he's not striking out a lot of guys, but nobody's getting hits off him. He's giving. He's only giving up 56 hits in 64 innings, and this is with a allowing a five-run inning on Sunday, right? So you t- just think about that for a second. He had a bad inning, and he's still got these great numbers for the rest of the season. There's no knocking Arietta on this. Now, I got one other thing for you on this issue. J.P. Morosi, um, MLB Network, talked to Gabe Kapler today and asked him um, if Jake Arietta's comments are indicative of discontent in the clubhouse and if he plans to reevaluate his shifting practices. And I think that the question is very curious because if you're, if you're Morosi, why are you saying – is this disc, is there discontent in the clubhouse? If just based off of what Arietta said, I mean, I didn't I didn't think Arietta was saying that everybody's miserable. I thought he I think he's saying that you know I I think that the you guys need to figure out what you're doing wrong. Um, so he asks about discontent. Here's Kapler's response. It's it's actually a little long, so bear with me. I think I may have a different take on this than most. The last thing I want is for our clubhouse to be content. If we're content, it means we're not getting better. Our clubhouse should be passionate 
and driven like Jake and only satisfied when we are clicking on all cylinders. I don't think we have defensive shifts figured out. I don't think anyone has them nailed down. Jake's comments are true. We didn't play well and we could be better. It's a good opportunity for us to sit down and discuss how we can improve our team. Personally, I don't mind Jake expressing how he feels about shifts or anything else. Ideally, he and I and our clubhouse leaders and staff should be constantly discussing ways to excel. Wherever the impetus for improvement comes from, what matters is that we do everything we can to maximize our chance to win every single night. That may be the best quote I've heard from Gabe Kapler yet this year. Okay, so... I mean, seriously, think about it, right? And now, after, after two months of you going at Kapler and me defending him, let's pivot here and, and <laughs> let's turn the tables. And let me just ask you this. Is that a comment that is indicative of uh, an, a, a guy that's open to player critique, that hears his players, that is willing to adapt, that, that shows that he is a free thinker, that he's secure in, in admitting mistakes? Or did he just get owned by the, the, the clubhouse leader? Did he just yes. did he just say, oh, my God, uh, you know, Jake Arrieta, he, he, people are going to listen to him. These guys in the clubhouse are going to listen to him, and he destroyed me, and I'm just going to take it. it. You know, wh- which one of those things happened here? I, I think it's more the latter, and that's okay. That's a good thing in my mind. Now, the only here's the caveat that I put on it. I love his response. His response is basically, yeah, I heard him, and you know what? He's right. Okay, great. But here's the caveat. He needs to now r- respond by making the changes or doing the things that, that are necessary to address what Arietta brought out. If he's just giving us lip service with this and, go- and goes back to doing what he's been doing, he's going to lose the team. He's going to lose the clubhouse. But if he actually takes the criticism, accepts it, it says, Jake, you're right. I like that. Let's figure it out. You know, I need to be more on the ball and does something with that and fixes it. Then he probably wins over the clubhouse because then he says, you know what? You guys are giving you, giving me input that I didn't, that I wasn't aware of, or I wasn't seeing. Maybe I had blinders on or whatever the case. My nose was in my binder a little bit too much. Um, and now, okay, fine. You know what? I want to. I want to give you guys what you want a little bit. Yeah, and rather I, than oversimplify this by simply saying that the shifts aren't working, I mean, let's let's actually draw out to what extent these shifts aren't working. They've been one of the worst teams in Major League Baseball all year, certainly by in terms of runs saved or runs prevented. And I think a lot of us have seen this statistic now by Sports Info Solutions that say that the shifts have actually cost the Phillies anywhere between ten and eleven runs at this point in the season. And and as you said in a story that you posted tonight on Crossing Broad, that's. 10 times worse than any other team, the second worst team in Major League Baseball in terms of runs prevented by the shift. Now, <clears throat> that being said, they have, they have implemented a shift 28% of the time this season, which is the third highest rate in Major League Baseball. And it, it, just seems also, like it, seems, it seems like it's more than that. <laughs> it seems like it's more than that, right? And, yeah. and opponents are hitting 277 on ground balls against those shifts, which is also the third worst mark in Major League Baseball. So they're doing it almost more than any other team, and they're having the least amount of success, which exacerbates really their just how bad it's been. And and the thing that I think that people, I think there are two things that, that people fail to realize, and I'm surprised that I didn't really hear this addressed that much today in everybody's furor over this. It, 
here's the thing. If you're a pitcher and you're, you're on this team right now and, and you've had a lot of success, this staff has, had, has been excellent for two months here. Every inning that you throw is, is high stress. It's high, it's high leverage because your offense is not giving you anything to work with. And you know, game in, game out, inning to inning, that you have to be damn near perfect if you want this team to win on any given night. And that's a tough way to pitch. And, and not only that, but when you induce weak contact, a three-hopper that is traditionally nine times out of ten going to result in an out, and you see it squirt through the infield because a guy is standing 17 feet away from where he's traditionally supposed to play, that takes a toll on pitchers. It does. Mentally, yeah. it's very hard to get back on the bump and say, okay, I just, I just got a three-hopper that I wanted. I made my pitch. And I didn't get an out because we're doing all this crazy-ass shit behind me. And it's very hard, I think, for guys to, to overcome that. I think that there's something to be said for that. And don't think for one second that this was the Jake Arietta show yesterday, that he went rogue, that he said, you know what, I've had enough of this. I haven't talked to anybody else about it, but damn it, I hate these shifts and I'm going to say something about it. You don't think that these pitchers, that this pitching staff has gotten together on several occasions, whether it be in the clubhouse, at dinner, over a drink at a bar on the road, and talked about what's going on with these shifts and how ineffective they've been. I look at this as Jake Arrieta speaking on behalf of probably quite a few pitchers that have grown frustrated with what they've seen through you know 57 games or whatever it is. This wasn't Jake Arrieta just pissed off because he gave up five runs in the sixth inning on Sunday afternoon, and, and he just popped off because he couldn't control his emotions. He was he was representing, I think, a widespread belief throughout that staff. Yes, 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 a hundred percent, yes. And here's the thing: I have I, I have a, a query. Okay, and this isn't this isn't meant to be an anti-shifting comment, but go with me on this for a second. If if your research shows that a guy tends to hit a ball into a particular spot more often than not, rather than shifting in that general direction, wouldn't you be better off letting the pitcher pitch him in such a way? so that he's not hitting the ball where he usually hits the ball, so that you could play him straight away? You see what I'm saying? Like, take him out of his comfort zone. Take him away from – and I know, I know. Ryan Howard lost his career by – you know, his career went down the tubes once people started shifting on him, and he couldn't adjust. But what you saw this past weekend is you saw a Giants team who went up there – and I, Brandon Crawford was the, the killer of them all in the three games. And he would look at how they're shifting him and say, you know, I'm just going to stick my bat out and put the ball at shortstop. Yeah, I'm just going to hit it there. But if he, if you got a guy there, now all of a sudden he's going to hit the ball to where he's normally hitting the ball, or you try and pitch him, you know, in areas that he's not going to hit the ball there. Right. So yeah, you know, the the only contention to this is that you're pitching that guy in a place for a specific reason. Like I might work a guy low and away because I don't think that he can handle those low and away pitches, and and then that's where he's going to hit the ball the majority of the time. I'm not going to maybe bust him in the inner half of the plate because I know that he's capable of driving those pitches. Right. Like right. aren't you working in certain areas to begin with because sure. you're you're trying to stay out of danger zones? Sure. You you want to stay out of where they succeed. But just because somebody hits the ball into a certain spot doesn't mean that it's success in that spot, right? So they, they have, you know, the zone is what, nine uh, quadrants, or I don't want to say quadrants, that would, that would suggest four, um, but nine areas of the strike zone. And you could sit there and you can break it down by how a batter, you know, where his, he's most successful and where he's least successful. Um, 
just because you're pitching a guy in the, in that spot doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to take the ball and put it where he gets the most hits from. You see what I'm saying? He's successful. So if you're pitching, if he, a guy, a batter is not good down and away, then you're going to pitch him down and away. He's not going to hit the ball where he hits it where, with success. He's going to hit it somewhere else. So that's it's almost like you're pitching back. Like when you're shifting, you have to pitch backwards. You almost want want to put the ball into a place where they do hit well so that they can hit to that spot because that's where they get their hits. If they, I mean, if you're shifting guys, it's because guys get hits in that spot, right? If you're not Absolutely. shifting there, that's where they get hits. So if you're going to put a guy in that spot, you're anticipating that he's going to hit the ball there because that's where he gets that's where he gets his most success. Well, why are we pitching to his success spot? Let's p- pitch. Uh, let's pitch to where he's unsuccessful and stay where we are and see if that does anything because that's how it was done for many many years. And it's not like hitters were hitting. Oh my God, we had all these hitters hitting 350. They weren't. <laughs> like, like there wasn't like this great thing in the past, you know, ten years ago where where teams were hitting over three hundred. They weren't. No, I mean that's an interesting point. The the one thing that I thought kind of got overlooked by by Arietta's comments, he said, "Copy the best." Did you catch him when he said that? Copy I did. The I, best. I, so I did like that. Yeah. This is this is something that I I wish we were privy to, and and I admit that I'm not. But what are the Phillies doing in terms of their shifts that deviate from maybe what the more successful teams are doing? You know, like, and again, I think we're still, I thought we were beyond the small sample size phrase in our show. Maybe we're still a little bit in that zone right now. But maybe. I'm just kind of curious. Like, so how or in what way are the Phillies deviating with their shifting patterns as opposed to the more successful teams? Well, I think, I, you know, and I, I can't sit, just like you, I can't sit here and give you the exact answer to that question. But I mean, because I he doesn't that, say that. I mean, he doesn't yeah. say that if they weren't, right? Right. You know? but, I, but I think what ends up happening is, is I think that there have been times, and we can, we can identify them, um, where the shift was so, was so out of whack that it cost them a, a game, like the Mets game uh, with the right field, shallow right field, and the one, which was it, the Marlins where they were in, uh, O'Double was in right center and the ball was at the left center, right? Um, and there was all that. It should have been a, a base hit or, or even a fly out, and it ended up being a triple. Um, I mean, there are games where you look at it, and, and the one I, that I keep harping about, I think I harp about it every week, is why they're shifting with a runner on first, <laughs> and they're they're shifting everybody over to one side. It's like you you can't do that. Like they're you're either opening up the entire left side of the uh, right uh, right side of the infield, or you are putting your uh, third baseman into a position where he has to now cover second, which he doesn't normally do. And, and you know, it's not easy to turn the double play if you're in that shift. So there's so many things that I think that they're doing. And, look, the shift has worked a few times. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it hasn't worked. I mean, it's worked sometimes. Um, but it, but if, you're, if you're a negative 11 on runs scored when you're in the shift – and only one other team in baseball is negative, and everyone else is positive. It's almost an impossible statistical disparity. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. It's uh, cr- something's wrong. Now, Something of course, and, and I don't want to seem like we're spending all this time on Jake Arrieta, but the thing is, is that he he nailed all of the primary talking points about this team right now. None of this happens. He's not out there, and I think eventually the shift thing would have come up. But none of this gets said had the Phillies hit this past weekend. Right. So let's just reassess this. And I'm going to throw some different numbers out at you to kind of illustrate how poor this was. 
one run. We all know that. 29 strikeouts over the weekend. 16 times they went down in order. Uh, one time that happened because of a double play, but 15 other times they went down 1-2-3. They were 0-for-17 with runners in scoring position. That is obviously the reason that they lost these games. That is what I think really uh, sparked Arietta's his displeasure. Let's look at what the Phillies have now done at this point in the season offensively. The National League uh, average in terms of batting average is 243. The Phillies are at 233. The National League average for OPS, 713. The Phillies are at 699. National League average for runs scored, 250. The Phillies are at 239. You see where I'm going with this here? They're below yeah, average below in the average. National League. And if I think we were to evaluate where this team was headed back in, let's say, just February even, we could have made a case one through eight about how intriguing each of their offensive everyday position players were going to be and, and the upside of each and ceilings. And we would have used a lot of positive terminology, I think, to describe where this thing was headed from an offensive standpoint. Yeah, they had questions. And, and yeah, guys like Michael Franco, there were serious concerns about but overall I think we felt pretty good about this offense and it has not materialized to this point that's not to say that it won't that's not to say that these guys stink I'm not trying to bury anybody here but I think it's it's worth wondering at this point is there somebody to blame I mean we don't have to blame anybody I know that that's as as fans or as media members that's what we tend to do when things go wrong we blame we point fingers is this on Gabe Kapler? Is this on John Malley, the hitting coach? Is this on the assistant hitting coach, Pedro Guerrero? I mean, who who are we blaming? Are we blaming Matt Klintak for playing guys out of position, forcing guys like Scott Kingery to play shortstop and making them uncomfortable at the plate? Reese Hoskins playing left field when he's a first baseman. I mean, is that it? Who are we blaming for, for what this offense has been? I, well, I think it's got to be a little bit of everybody. I mean, I, I and I hate to be the hedge there. I don't, you know, I know we want. And I think that being the hedge is probably, you know, <laughs> yeah, is the, the correct way- <laughs> uh, response. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, we can sit here and, and look at individual players in the lineup and say you're not hitting, you're not hitting, you're not hitting, you're not hitting. But we also have to look at the approach. And one of the things that you know keeps coming up, and again, I hear it on the broadcasts. When you hear the broadcasters kind of dropping these little hints. It lets you know that they see something and they can't really expand on it because they're broad, they're the team broadcasters, but they see it. Um, and and the thing of it is, is that you, you know they can't. The Phillies early in the season were taking a lot of pitches. They were working the count. They were working starting pitchers, and it was getting kind of. Um, uh, it was great. I mean, they were getting seven-pitch, eight-pitch at-bats, getting pitchers out of games early, walking a lot. And they're still walking a little bit, but not as not at the same rate. But what the teams have figured out is, you just throw first-pitch strike to the Phillies. Yeah, get get one over. They're not going to swing. All right? Their, their first-pitch swing percentage is low. And then, you know, all of a sudden the second pitch is fouled off. Now it's 0-2. Right? And the Phillies are way behind. It, there's a reason they're hitting 233 as a team. And, and, it's, yep. beca- and it's because it's – because they are getting behind early in counts. They've really looked terrible against rookie pitchers, no less. I mean, it's not like the Giants were trotting out like their best pitchers this past these past three games. And then even against, even against the uh, 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 the Cardinals when they were in St. Louis, they struggled a lot. I, mean, I know Flaherty's a, a nice young prospect. It's not like he's you know yeah he's not uh, some he's guy. not green right. He's not just some guy. But I mean, still, I mean, he's he's a young pitcher and he looked like it like like he was untouchable um, against the Phillies. And then it was uh, who was it for the Dodgers? Was it Stripling? 
that, yeah, that, <laughs> that pitched the shut it, shutdown game against the Phillies. And, and Clayton Kershaw coming off of a DL stint yeah. and then immediately going back to the DL <laughs> that, afterwards. But he, he, he had could, enough in him to come in for five innings and shut down the Phillies. But he couldn't throw yeah. a fastball. Yeah, and he was throwing 89 miles an hour. Couldn't throw a fastball. I mean, he, talk, he even admitted it afterwards. I had nothing. And yet the Phillies couldn't do anything with it. And that's what, I'm, that's what, that's what the concern is. Like, their approach at the plate. So that's maybe something you blame Malley. Maybe that's where you sit there and say, you know what, that's on the hitting coach. Um, and if you watch that game this weekend, and I think that the most concerning thing there was that there were a lot of swings early in counts against non-competitive pitches, you know, pitches that weren't strikes, that, that were never going to be strikes. Guys just kind of flipping their bat out, making weak contact. Um, it was it was bizarre. The approaches this weekend were, were bizarre. They looked like they were in a rush, you know. It, it was like they've been patient this year, and I know you're talking about establishing strike one, pitchers working ahead in counts, but the Phillies just a lot of weak contact early on in counts. Um, it just it was, it was strange to watch. Um, I, I know that we go through this every week where I, I think that the pattern of our show is like, let's talk about one or two guys that are either doing something uh, really well at, at the time we record or, or somebody that's, that's really struggling. Um, right now, there's nobody in this lineup. I mean, if I were to say to you, Phillies have bases loaded, two outs, and, and they're down a run in the ninth inning, who do you want to send to the plate right now? It's the guy we're going to fight about. <laughs> yeah, God, is that going to be your answer? Yeah, it, it's so, going to be Carlos, Carlos Santana. Yeah, is my Carlos answer. Santana. Okay, so um, let me. So you, you mentioned Glenn Macnow earlier, right? I, I feel like when he's yeah. on air with with uh, Ray Dittinger on Saturdays, he he kind of always frames a question in a long winded way, and I like this. And he gets himself all worked up, and he says, "Ray, what say you?" Well, yeah. <laughs> Carlos Santana was signed to a three-year deal worth $60 million to play first base for the Philadelphia Phillies, a position that they didn't need somebody at, uh, at the expense of, of kind of taking Reese Hoskins and throwing him out to left field where he's just not very, he's not very good out there. Um, he's hitting 218. He had the yips for like a 10-day stretch and killed them defensively. Uh, the OPS is kind of hovering in the mid 700s, which isn't terrible, but it's certainly not what you really signed up for. Uh, you've talked about it before how the season, as, as it goes along, he gets more productive. Um, he didn't run out of ball on Sunday in the first inning after they were shut out for two consecutive games, and it kind of felt like a must-win situation for them. And, and he hits a flare you know, down the left field line, and it falls fair, and he's standing on first base. And Nick Williams, sure enough, comes up and gets a base hit and should have scored Santana. Where Defend him for me. Anthony, <laughs> I'm going to right. I'm going Please to right do. Now. Yeah. Okay. So we had this discussion before. He had one month where he was a disaster. The first month of the season, he was not good, and we we accepted it because his track record was, hey, he's not. He doesn't get hot until July. He's a guy. He's a, he's great in the second half of the season, and that's when he's going to get good. So don't worry about it. He'll come around. Well, guess what? He's come around a lot sooner than he usually does. Last 27 games, which goes from uh, May 4th to June 3rd, okay, so a month. He's hitting 292, on base 387, OPS 981. 14 of his 28 hits have been extra base hits. He's got seven home runs, 22 RBIs. He's walked 15 times and only struck out 14 times. I, I don't know what more you could ask from a guy. 
And, and if this is what he's going to give you moving forward and he gets better in the second half of the year, I, I, I don't know what else you can expect. I mean, okay, he doesn't run a ball out. I get it. You, you know, you can be frustrated in the moment at that. And we used to be frustrated in the moment at Jimmy Rollins when Jimmy Rollins didn't run out a ball. But that didn't mean we sat there and said, oh, geez, Jimmy Rollins kills this team. No, because he doesn't. And, and yes, you're right. He had the the infield. The fielding issues were were scary. I mean, it, you can't you can't do that. You can't make an error in four consecutive games as a first baseman. You just can't. Okay, that's that's terrible. Um, so yeah, that was that was a concern. It seems to maybe have gotten past that, which is a good thing because, geez, we've seen guys right. We've seen the Chuck Knobloks of the world and, and the Mackie Sassers of the world who once they got that in them, they couldn't make that throw. I mean, John Lester can't throw a pickoff throw to first base because he's afraid he's going to throw the ball in, uh, into the stands. Um, so it's good that Santana looks like he's gotten past that. But at the plate, he's been very consistent for the past month, very consistent. And I don't think that you can get – yeah, the average is low right now. Yeah, his on-base percentage is a little lower than it usually is. Um, but he's getting there. And, and I think that if you look at the way he's played over the last month, he's been as, – as good as Oduble was earlier in the year, uh, Santana is their best player right now. And that's that's all. And and it, it it's not a great thing to say. You would hope that there would be guys who were better, even better than that. But in the, for the past month, Carlos Santana has been the best Philly. It's at the, uh, at the plate. At the plate. When anyway. you kind of like go into where he's at, and and you look at the batting average, and you go like it's just it's not where you want it to be, and you start digging deeper and deeper and deeper, trying to figure out where where he's going wrong. He's uh he struggled quite a bit against changeups this year. So like I look at uh runs created or runs above average created against individual pitches like and and I guess essentially the measure there is what is a guy doing in terms of his overall value against fastballs against changeups against curveballs and last year he was he was very good he was well above league average in terms of generating runs off of changeups and the number is 3.6 and this year he's actually in the complete opposite end of the spectrum he's negative 3.7 he's been Pretty good against fastballs still, but sliders, uh, he's he's in the negative there. It seems like he's struggling a little bit with the with the off speed stuff, but the walks are still there. You know, it, when you look at the the baseline numbers, there's nothing that's terribly out of whack with him, and that's why I'm still kind of like in this patience mode. But I've been less impressed with him, and I think I think that this is where we deviate. I, I can see this. I I I am understanding of the fact that I think that there is room for growth here where he's he's going to end up at 240 250 the OPS is going to float in the upper 700s low 800s before it's all said and done I think he may hit 25 home runs and and when we evaluate this thing at the end of the season I think we may say Carlos Santana did a nice job for them but I've been less impressed with what I've already seen to this point than than I think you have been no I it's not that I've been I'm I'm not been impressed so much as I've been okay. It was it was a bad first month, and now we're getting what, what I kind of expected. Okay, I don't expect him to be a two ninety two hitter all year. He's his, he's a career two forty eight hitter, so I don't expect him to hit two ninety two. This this uh, is a, a question that you can't answer. Um, but like I'm just kind of okay. interested in what what you think about it. I mean, there is no definitive answer, or definitive conclusion that you can make from this. What about those that say like you went out and you spent a, a pretty good amount of money on this guy you're paying him 20 million dollars a year over the next three years was this the best use of their assets and and not only that but at the expense of kicking a guy that you thought was going to be a foundation player and Reese Hoskins into the outfield and, and you've watched him be abysmal really for the last five weeks and I, I know he's on the DL now but 
is there anything to be said for when you look at what A, you spent and, and B, the, the, the reverberation effect, you know, the, the trickle-down effect of what you've now done to Reese Hoskins, do you think that there's any correlation between those things? Or when you, when you evaluate the money that was spent on him, does that alter your assessment of him in any way? Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I, you know, the other option was go get an outfielder. Right, because if you put Hoskins, if you keep Hoskins at first base, and you want a middle of the lineup outfielder, because they didn't think—I mean, as much as we sat here and said, "Oh, they've got plenty of depth in the outfield," well, they really don't. And we're going to talk about <laughs> Aaron Altair in a minute, John Mayberry Jr. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so th- th- you know, maybe they knew that they only had two guys that they deemed number four outfielders in Altair and Nick Williams, although although both you and I think Nick Williams is probably a little bit better than that. Um, but ultimately, that's what the way that's how they viewed them and said, you know what, let, if we can get uh, the first baseman is better than whatever, you know, Santana is better than whatever outfielder they could tr- they could have brought in at a similar dollar figure for a similar term. And we could just plug Reese Hoskins in left field because – Left field doesn't matter. We want a World Series with Pat Burrell out there. Um, maybe that's the, that was a better solution than keeping Hoskins at first and finding the guy to play the outfield, I, I guess. Um, they definitely needed a veteran batter in the lineup. There was no doubt about it. They were too young otherwise, and they still are too young otherwise. Um, so they really needed that veteran presence. I don't know who would have been a better choice. Um, than Santana. So that's why I'm kind of okay with it still. Because, you know, yeah, you you probably, you know, moved people around in ways that you didn't, you you shouldn't have had to, and it's hurt you defensively. I mean, there's a reason the Phillies are the worst or or next to last in uh, fielding percentage in in baseball or at least in the National League. Um, And it hasn't helped that the gold glove first baseman struggled as well. But yeah, you've weakened left field. You're not as good at first base as you thought you were going to be. You're not good. You're terrible at shortstop. You're, you know, I mean, so you got issues with with fielding now that was been created by this. But I think lineup wise, this was probably the best bet that they had. Yeah, well, and, and speaking of this lineup, I mean, I still feel pretty good about Odubel Herrera. Although I think at this point we have to maybe put his uh, MVP campaign on ice for a little bit. Um, you know, he's hitting <laughs> yeah. 138 over the last seven days, four for his last 29. He's down to 305 now for the season, and and overall he's still in pretty good shape here. And I expect him to, to come out of that. I I've talked enough about how much he I think of does. him as a hitter, yeah. uh, and he's just going through it a little bit right now. But I look at let's say Cesar Hernandez, and, and I still feel pretty good about him. Scott Kingery, I think, ultimately becomes a good baseball player for this team. I'm not quitting on Scott Kingery by any stretch. I understand the situation that he's been put into, and uh, he, he's still obviously in the infant stages of his career here. But he's been he's been bad, and I don't know that that's going to you know click in, in next week or in two weeks from now. This may be what you get out of him this year, and as scary as that is. Um, but when I look up and down this lineup, I. You can't help but obviously be a little bit underwhelmed. But again, Mike Alfranco, are you surprised about what he's been? I mean, I I'm not. I was surprised when he was being productive early in the season, but I'm I'm kind of right back to where I've always been with him. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know who Mike Alfranco is? He's Pedro Feliz. That's really what he is. That's not what we were signing up for. It's not there, what we no. wanted, but that's what he is. Yeah. So I think Mike Alfranco is going to be 
a serviceable third baseman in Major League Baseball for a few years. Until Alex Bohm arrives. <laughs> Alec Bohm. I think actually it was, his name is Alec Bohm, by the way, but he was called Alex on MLB Network earlier. He was so. called Alex a couple times. Yeah. I thought not just yeah. on MLB. I thought I saw it in the story as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, it is Alec. You but. know, but the, the guy that, that has just killed them, and I think that they had high expectations for him, and, and we've kind of railed against I've certainly kind of railed against him on this podcast, but that's not entirely fair because coming into the season uh, I, th- I thought he was going to be a little bit better than this obviously and that would be uh, Aaron Altair and uh, he has been an absolute disaster uh, this season and and just to kind of break this down coming into the year I, I thought he was going to be a 260 guy maybe hit you 25 home runs uh, good athleticism good good outfielder he could work counts a little bit he hits 272 last year, 856 OPS, 19 home runs, and 412 plate appearances. This year, he's hitting 181. The OPS is down to 634. That's a 222-point decrease, and we're 172 plate appearances into this season. Um, he has been a disaster, and I think that they were really counting on him to provide some pop from the right side. And it just has not happened. And I think he's a big part of the reason why this team has been so bad offensively. Yeah. And, 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 uh, any contention uh, to that? No, none, <laughs> none whatsoever. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned uh, in passing and joking there, you, you, you compared him to John Mayberry Jr. And I think um, if you delve into your numbers a little bit further, you will find that there are real similarities, <laughs> excuse me, between the two. Um, at this juncture in their career. Yeah, so uh, 2011, John Mayberry Jr. busts onto the scene, 267 plate appearances. He hits 274, 854 OPS, almost identical to uh, Altair's numbers from last year, 15 home runs. Uh, rest of his career, he never sniffs a 750 OPS again. He's out of baseball four years later. Uh, and, and he was a pretty underwhelming player uh, at the end with the Phillies. And, and there was a time where you thought maybe he's not going to be a complete player, but you know, from the right hand, you know, from the right side of the plate against lefties, this guy's going to mash. And, and I kind of thought that, that maybe Altair wasn't necessarily a, the complete package, but a guy that certainly could provide that pop for you. Um, and, and he, when we when we think about John Mayberry, the, the similarities are what that they're they're big guys and that they play the outfield and and there was some pop there initially. I was surprised to see just how similar their numbers really were. You know, Altair's 2017 season and Mayberry's 2011 season, uh, and and he looks like he's going down the same path here. Um, he's hitting 189 since August 1st of, of last season. Um, maybe, uh, Altair's numbers really from the, the 2017 season were inflated by his, his April and May, and he had a very good July, but he struggled in June, and he was terrible in August and September. So um, you know what runs above replacement is, right? Yes. Okay. So he was, uh, So a replacement-level player is set for a team with a winning percentage of – 294, which is terrible. Okay, that's even the worst teams in baseball have a better winning percentage than that, right? So that's what you're. That's what you you base your replacement level player at is is that that poor of a team, that poor of a player. Last year, Altair was a plus 19 and runs above runs above above replacement. This year, he's minus three. So he's cost the Phillies more runs than a replacement-level player on a team that would be worse than any team in baseball today. 
that's 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 it's it, just looking at it like that. It's like he's not even worthy of a roster spot, let alone playing as regularly as he is. And they don't have a choice right now. And this is where something we didn't even we we briefly touched on this yesterday. I think um, when we were talking, but this is something that you got to look at Matt Klintak a little bit because the one thing that baseball teams do is they invite a lot of teams invite guys to spring training and usually they invite a lot of veteran players guys who've got major league experience and occasionally one of them wins a roster spot but usually they end up going to triple a and they're kind of they're kind of there for you to call up when you need a guy when somebody gets hurt they come up and play for a few weeks and then they go back down and that's how they get 100 150 at bats uh year in year out and they're always bouncing around from team to team to team and they're not necessarily great players, but they're veteran guys, the guys you can bring in in a pinch. The Phillies don't have anybody in this in in that realm. Their bench right now consists of Dylan Cousins, who just got called up, didn't deserve to get called up because he wasn't hitting well at AAA. I think what was he hitting one eighty? He got called up. Um, he was a little over 200, but the strikeouts, were, he, he almost set a professional baseball record last year for strikeouts in a season, yeah. and, and they've actually gone up this year. So, yeah, yeah. to your so, point, yeah, he, he was not deserving of a he call was not, And the only reason that they had to call him up because they didn't have another outfielder to call up that was deserving of a call-up on the 40-man roster. Um, they called up Mitch Walding, who's now had six at-bats, and all six at-bats in major leagues have been strikeouts. Um, Yasmul Valentin, who barely plays, I think he's got one hit so far since he's been called up, and Andrew Knapp, who is a disaster of a catcher. So they got no, they got nothing on the bench, and that includes playing Altair uh, every day. So the, the, the Klentak really left the cupboard bare to not be prepared to have to have. And I'm not saying you're going to bring in a guy who's going to come in and 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 tear it up. But, I mean, you know, they had in, in spring training, they had Ryan Flaherty and Adam Rosales. Adam Rosales hasn't really shown up anywhere. But Flaherty's turned out to be a pretty useful player for the Atlanta Braves, playing a lot of third base for them. He was hitting over 300 for a while. I think he's now down to like 285 or whatever. Um, and he's sharing time now with uh, John Camargo over at third base. But the fact of the matter is, is that he's a useful player. That would have been a guy, to me, that you sit there and say, hey, you know, let's keep this guy around. He can play three infield positions and the outfield if you need him. And, you know, he's a left-handed bat. And, you know, hey, there's a guy we could use. Well, it's like you go back to, like, 2011, right? And you had, like, Wilson Valdez. Like, no, nobody's yeah. going to mistake Wilson Valdez for one of the legendary all-time Phillies players. But in 2011, Wilson Valdez hit 249 in 300 plate appearances. Like, that's what they don't have right now. Right. Um, you know, even the catchers like Chris Coast, Eric Kratz, guys that were functional. Instead, you have Andrew Knapp, who honestly represents – a guy that I have less confidence in than some of the Phillies starting pitchers at the plate right now. And and that's not hyperbole. I mean, he has been absolutely worthless offensively, and he's not a particularly good defensive catcher either. You know, yeah. and we're, we're singling out. A, a, I know catcher is a little bit of a different animal, but you just look at this, and, and you go back at guys like Ben Francisco when the Phillies were, were good. You get Greg Dobbs, a utility guy that had been around a little bit. You find these players to help fill out your roster, and the good teams have these guys on them and they make contributions and and you're right you're you're a hundred percent right they don't have that here and yeah, it's I killing mean, them look at look at look at who's got two walk-off home runs for the braves charlie stinking culberson culberson yeah 
Hey, he's he's not a good hitter. Yeah, and you, you do. What? You need some of that. You need those moments. You know, not only yeah. do you steal a game here and there because you have those guys, but I know that the numbers may say that this is nonsense, but you know, and I think you believe in the narrative aspect and the psychological aspect of baseball to an extent. Th- those are wins and, and games. When you steal wins like that, that has a snowball effect. You yeah. know that that's the type of the type of win that can change a season, can change the total complexion, vibe, feeling about what type of clubhouse you have. You say we're that team, we're that team that's never out of it, and, and you need the horses to do that. You need those guys to create those moments, and and this team completely lacks that. If it's not Odubel Herrera, or if it's not Carlos Santana, or if it's not Aaron Nola or Jake Arrieta, or you know uh, Pavetta or Velasquez going out and throwing an absolute gem behind a lights out bullpen. They're not winning, and and it's the Phillies' formula is is very one dimensional for how they win games at this point, and, and yeah. that is because of a lack of depth. And and just to, to go back to Altair for a second, it's not like there's one thing that he's being exposed on. It, it, it's it's everything. If you look at his average against certain pitches last year, he hit two two forty seven against the slider. A year ago, he's hitting 143 this year. His his average against the fastball is down nearly 20 points. Sinkers, he hit 321 a year ago, 167 this year. Changeup, he doesn't have a hit in 18 at-bats that finished with a changeup, whether that be because he either struck out or put the ball in play. I mean, he has been... He's been awful against pretty much everything. The only pitch that he's hit with any success is the curveball. And so pitchers, it, it, he is a very easy out right now. Uh, they know that he's, he's not going to hit their mistakes, and they know that there's a, a variety of ways that you can go about getting him out. And um, he's, he's killing them because he's not a guy that's, that's plugged in 7th and 8th in this lineup. He's, he is an integral piece in this lineup, and he has been, as you said, he's, he's been bad, and the numbers have certainly bared that out. Yeah. Um. Speaking of being bad, <laughs> this has been very positive, right? <laughs> I hope everyone's like everyone's like ready to step away from three bad games in San Francisco, kind of clear the air and, and get back at it against the Cubbies. And, Not us. and here we are. It's like no. uh, yeah, we got to wallow in it for yeah, one more night. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking of bad, how about Hector Naris? What what is what do we do? With, what do you do with him? I. <laughs> I, I I don't even know where to begin. Like every time he comes in, he's given up a home run. He's given up hits. Yeah, well, in the spirit of being positive, um, strikeouts are astronomical. Eleven point seven strikeouts per nine innings, and and that's why you, you know I, I see a lot of times he gives up runs, and people go, "You got to DFA him, get his ass out of here, cut him." I mean, you don't cut relievers that have experienced you know a relative amount of success. And guys that can strike out nearly 12 batters per nine innings. But, uh, you know, 5-2-4 ERA, 19.2% of the fly balls that he has uh, given up this year have gone over the fence. Um, that, is, that is absolutely horrendous. The, the home runs are way up. Um, he's been terrible. He's been eminently hittable when, when he doesn't make his pitches. He either makes a, a filthy pitch or a fat pitch, and that's what you're seeing with him right now. Yeah, it's bad. His whip's 1.61. He's given up five home runs in 22 innings. We were talking about Arietta, had only given up three in 64. Naris has given up five in 22. Um, he's, he's given up 10. And, and it actually feels like, doesn't it feel like it's more than that? More than that. Yeah. It does, it definitely does. Uh, 10.5 hits per nine innings, which is the worst uh, ratio of his career, by two hits per nine. 
Uh, his best, uh, the, his previous worst was eight point five as a rookie. Yeah, and then the and walks, the walks are up. And the, is it is it that he doesn't have four, the same commander? Yeah. Is he just scared? Is it? I think it's probably a combination of both. I think it's mental at this you point, know? right? I mean, it's not like you know, it's not like he's you know n- new to the game. I mean, this is his fourth full season yeah. in the major leagues at this point. But, and, and he's been de- he's been good before. I mean, this is not like you know, and that's another reason. And why if you, you look at the velocity, I mean, the velocity's there. It's consistent. It's not like oh, this was a guy that was ripping it at ninety six, you know, on average last season, and he's down to ninety two and a half. And he, it's not that, you know, it's not an arm thing. It's not a velo thing. It's it's been a location thing, and um, he's he's gotten hurt with it. And, and well, let me throw let me yeah. throw one thing at you then. He's got one option left. He's 29 years old. You're really not going to option a guy in his 30s right back down to the minors. Do you? Do you use that final option now and let send him down and let him figure it out and work it out and then see if he can come back in three, four weeks and and be, be, be better? I mean, it worked last year for a guy like Edibre Ramos, right? Ramos was a disaster at this point last year. They sent him down. Um, he took a couple weeks, came back, and was actually a pretty decent pitcher for them after that point. Uh, Luis Garcia also had a similar kind of thing. Um, sent him down. Um, he he's now out of options as well. Um, but then he brought him back, and he's been good for them since then. I, is it worth using up his last option um, just for a few weeks, or are you just sitting? I mean, especially with the with the lineups that you're going to be facing coming up, because it ain't it, it ain't going to get better. <laughs> Facing the Cubs, the Brewers, the Rockies, the Cardinals, the Nationals, the Yankees. I mean, that's who's coming up in this month, right? So, is it going to? Is he suddenly going to figure it out against these teams? I think you're better off not. You know, again, I understand you don't really have the depth. I mean, I guess who who would who would be the guy to come up? Um, Let me just ask you. I, I did a little search on this a couple minutes ago when we started this conversation. Where are we at on Pat Neshek? You know, I well, heard he's working his way back, but just kind of doing a, a quick little search here. I haven't heard much new on him in the last couple of days. Yeah, he was on the trip, and they said that he was supposed to throw a bullpen, um, and they, they thought that he could be fast tracked um, to get back into the rotation or back into the bullpen. But I don't know. Again, I haven't heard anything since that was. Yeah, said. I wouldn't be overly optimistic uh, about that. You would think, and and I'm going back a couple of days now. I, I haven't heard anything new on that front, so I'm not sure where we're at there. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, maybe. I I think it gets to a point where you have two options here. You you, you most certainly can't use him in in high leverage situations at this point. So he, he's not going to be throwing those types of innings for you. So do you send him back down there and let him work it out with that option and, and then hope? And I would be inclined to do that for the very reason that you said when you look at the competition coming up. But not only that, if he can't figure it out down there, you know, if he, he has a prolonged stint and he can't figure it out, or maybe he does and then you bring him back up and he reverts back to this, I think you're at the point where you're not so desperate that you have to wait and wait and wait with Hector Neris. I mean, you have other options in that bullpen. You're not absolutely married to this guy. I think that you certainly need to see what – give him an ample opportunity to figure this out. But, yeah, send him down at this point. I mean, why not? Um or, you know, if you want to try to have him work it out, if, if Nick Pavetta gives you that four-inning start like he did the other night, maybe that's where you bring him in. And you, you try to have him build that confidence back up and figure it out on the fly uh, at the major league level. But certainly any game that is within reach, um, whether you be protecting a lead or you're trying to claw your way back into it, I just he doesn't seem to be a viable option at this point. The, the, you know what the biggest problem is? They don't have 
guys again that you can bring up and replace him who are on the 40-man roster. That's the issue. I mean, the yeah. only relievers in minor in, in the minors right now who are on the 40-man roster are Yaxel Rios, who we've seen, and he's whatever, uh, Zach Curtis and Hobie Milner, who are lefties. That's it. They have nobody else that's on the 40-man. Yeah, and, and I think that that's what it comes down to, though. I mean, I don't think you're necessarily bringing up, I mean, whether it be Hobie Milner or Yaxel Rios, I don't think you're bringing up somebody to necessarily be more effective than Hector Neris. I think it's more, is this the best thing for him? You know, like what's going to get him right, even if it's at the expense of potentially downgrading at the major league level for the time being, which sounds insane, uh, especially when you're going into the stretch that they're going into. But what is it going to be that's going to get him right? Uh, and, and I think that they need to exhaust all possible resources and, and, and kind of leave no stone unturned, so to speak, in, in order to figure that out. Uh, because right now with Naris, it's just been it's been god awful. It's it's been absolutely terrible. And he has actually in his last ten last ten appearances, he's given up at least one earned run in half of them. So I mean, it's basically a coin flip proposition right now whether or not he's going to give up a run. Um, and in his last seven days, he's pitched two and a third innings. He's given up nine hits, three earned runs. His whip is 3.86, and his ERA is 11.57. So this has gotten worse. You know, this isn't getting better. It's getting worse. Uh, so they, they got to figure out what they want to do. He's given up a run in each of his last four appearances. Last uh, thing for the Phillies. Tell me everything you can in the next 30 seconds, Bob, about their uh, first-round draft pick, third overall, Alec Baum. Uh Good plate discipline, walks more than he strikes out, has good power, has good plate coverage, um, may be a liability at six foot five, 240 pounds at third base. He ultimately may not be able to play there. Um, he may end up being a first baseman. The Phillies talked about it. You'll love this. They talked about him potentially being athletic enough to play left field or right field. So who the hell knows? Maybe he'll play third base his entire minor league career, and then two days before his call-up, they'll say, why don't you shag a couple in left because we might need you out there. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, he, he is an elite hitter, uh, certainly a high ceiling, good power. Um, I would say the projection time on him is 2020. Um, he had a monster year in Cape Cod League last summer that really kind of put him on the radar in terms of being a first-round pick, and he followed it up. I believe he hit. Uh, this is just off the cuff. I think he hit 339 as a junior at Wichita State. Um, he he's a very intriguing offensive prospect. Uh, leaves a little bit desired in terms of athleticism and his defensive play. How was yeah, that? That's great. That that's great. And, and I think that you know these, the one thing I can say that I'm going to add to it is um, when teams draft kids out of college as opposed to high school kids they especially in the first round um they expect them to be fast-tracked they expect them to get to the majors quick so like you look you look at uh, for example when the phillies drafted aaron nola um he can't get made it to the majors in was it 18 18 months it was like a year and a half yeah. right that's after he was drafted so the thought process is when you're drafting a guy that high and he's coming out of the collegiate ranks, and not a, he's not an 18-year-old. Um, they kind of expect you to get there quick. So then when you say 2020, a lot of people hear that and like, what's that? Geez, that's only a year and a half from now. Well, yeah, you know yeah, what? Yeah, I mean, he's 21 years old. He's, he'll be 22 <laughs> in August. So if, right. he, if he comes up the second half of the 2020 season, uh, he's 24 years old at that point. You know, so right. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, he should be fast-tracked. Um, this was from Matt Breen. He tweeted this out. This was uh, from the amateur scouting director, Johnny Almarez. And I don't know if Breen got this exclusively uh, or if uh, <laughs> this was said to everybody, but I want to make sure I give proper attribution because that's important. Uh, Philly's amateur scouting director, Johnny Almarez. Uh, Alec Bohm is a, a tremendous offensive player. He's a middle-of-the-order bat, a big power-hitting third baseman who could be a 300 hitter and drive in 100-plus runs. We are thrilled to have selected him. So, obviously, they have high expectations, but then again, I'm sure they've had high expectations for all of their former first round draft picks and that necessarily hasn't uh, panned out so you know I, I think that he's certainly a guy uh, I tweeted this uh, this this is if you want to know how I really feel about this pick let me tell you uh, I have no idea what he's going to become I, I obviously like his numbers I like the plate discipline and all that stuff but I said before you get on the can't wait for Boom to replace Franco thing he may not even play there at the same time, I can't wait for Bohm to replace Franco. Uh, that's that's kind of where I'm at with with uh, this selection. <laughs> Anything okay, well, is good. better than what I'm watching now. <laughs> um, all right, one last thing, which is our new title for our final thing from around baseball. Um, the New York Yankees are in a bit of a spat with ESPN. Um, and the reason that they're in this spat with ESPN is because ESPN has selected them to uh, be the Sunday night baseball game on July the 8th against the Toronto Blue Jays in Toronto. Um, the problem is, is that on uh, J- July the 9th, um, they have to play a doubleheader with the Baltimore Orioles in Baltimore. Um, based off of, I mean, the Yankees have gotten killed with rain. A lot of like the Phillies and the Mets and other Northeastern teams. Yeah, so that's the three, three games in two cities in twenty four hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the, but nevertheless, I mean, I mean, they, I think the Yankees have been rained out seven times. Okay, so so what what can you do? All right, if you're if 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 you're Major League Baseball, you got to get the games in. I mean, the Yankees are going to be in a race all year long with the Red Sox. They they kind of have to they have to play. Um, so this is, you know, the schedule's not ideal, but it is what it is. But the Yankees are mad because the they want to be off. They don't want to play at eight o'clock at night in Toronto. They would want to play at one o'clock, and that way they can get their get the flight uh, out of Toronto down to Baltimore a little bit sooner. And so they are now threatening to boycott ESPN. And this is the this is exactly what they have said that they will not uh, say no to all ESPN requests for interviews with players or coaches prior to a game uh, if that game on July 8th remains a Sunday night game. And so they're going to go to this stoop to this level and, and be basically to argue over six hours so that they can get somewhere six hours sooner. Is this a little bit too petty? <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, it is. Um, I, I don't know, though. I, I think somebody on the Yankees might have made this point. I think I, I read a quote today. Someone says, like, it's not like it, we're playing the Red Sox. <laughs> you know, like, you're playing the, uh, who are currently the 26-33 and 33, uh, Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, who are they going to be throwing on Sunday Night Baseball? Jay Happ? Is that who we're going to tune in to watch? <laughs> right. you know? So, I don't know. Uh, I actually just pulled this up as you were saying this. I'm like, wonder what other games are happening on uh, July 8th. Uh, you got Dodgers Angels, and I think I'd rather watch that. And you got the Phillies at Pittsburgh, little little cross state rivalry game there. I don't know. I, I think that ultimately, to kind of go ahead of your question for a second, 
the Yankees won't play that night. I think that this is going to get resolved in, in the Yankees' favor. Yeah, this is like next-level pettiness, though. And it's interesting that their manager, being a former ESPN employee, is in a little bit more privy or maybe sympathetic to the the way that Major League Baseball and, and the, the agreement that they have with ESPN and how they televise these games and, and really just how live sports works. Uh, it's not quite as simple as, well, this isn't really fair about our schedule. I mean, you look at the history of sports, and there have been plenty of teams that feel like they're getting boned on their scheduling, So, and at the expense of television, nonetheless. So th- this is not unique to the New York Yankees. They're not the first team in the history of professional sports to, to get an unfair deal because they have to accommodate a, a television schedule. Um, with that said, yeah, I guess if I were a player, I'd be pretty pissed. I don't know that I would boycott ESPN over it, though, because at the end of the day, you know, you're Aaron Judge and you're, you're Giancarlo Stanton, and they're fixated on you. They're showing your 475-foot home runs and talking about that every other night when they're not giving attention to other teams, other teams that are winning, by the way. I mean, they are, in a way, helping provide that, that free marketing for you. Um, so I think it's an interesting dynamic. Maybe I look at it a little bit differently than, than certainly the guys that are on that team do, but yeah, I kind of actually think it's bullshit to be honest with you. <laughs> just, uh, just to kind of give a little bit more context to this. So, um, before the start of spring training, the matchups for Sunday night baseball games, there's, they're set through the month of May. So the first uh, two months of the season are, are set in spring training. The rest of the schedule is determined during the season. Obviously, they, you know, ESPN wants to get the best possible matchup that they can on Sunday Night Baseball as the season progresses, so you're not putting bad teams on for um, a, a premium game. Um, so what they do, though, the ruling is ESPN has to uh, announce before spring training four games that they would consider for that Sunday night. So for July 8th, they're considering – now, they they ended up selecting Yankees-Blue Jays, but they were also considering Cardinals-Giants, which could be a good one, uh, Dodgers-Angels, which I think has a lot of in, intrigue, and Red Sox-Royals, which doesn't really, you know, do anything yeah, I for I mean, the, the Royals are 17 Royals, games under 500 yeah, Royal, right now. Royals stink, right? Um, so, I mean, I think ultimately what's going to happen, you're going to get Dodgers-Angels probably, um, although Cardinals-Giants isn't a bad second option, but Dodgers-Angels is probably what you're going to end up with. Um, and, and the Yankees won't play. But here's the one thing I want to say about it. Back, and this, I, this is before my time, okay, so I want to take you way back. In the six, 50s and 60s, there were scheduled doubleheaders, right? And so the, like you were scheduled for a doubleheader. It wasn't like, oh, it rained out and we got to give you a doubleheader. So there were scheduled doubleheaders. But there were times, and it's amazing to me, and I went back and looked at this, there were times when teams would play three doubleheaders in a week in three different cities. I mean, like, and they were okay. <laughs> like, they didn't fall off the – their arms didn't fall off, you know. They're, was, that they're, when, they didn't, was that when kids were walking eight miles to school in the snow? It's, it's not the it's – not the, that's not the point. The point is, is that we, we, you have better athletes today. They should be able to handle something like this where you have to play, you know, three games in 24 hours. It's okay, am I right? I mean, yeah, okay. It's a little bit of a stressor, but guess what's happening? A week later, you're on the All Star break, and you get four days yeah. off in a row. Well, I think. I mean, that, come on. And this is just speculation because uh, you know I was born in 1985, so this is well before my time. My guess is is that today's athlete has just got a little bit more of a sense of entitlement now. Oh yeah, yeah. But that's my argument. Yeah, I that's know. what I'm saying. Yeah, no, you're just right, take, but I mean, just knock it down a little bit. Yep. Suck it up for one for one twenty four hour period, and you're gonna be they're gonna be on vacation a week later. 
Literally, these guys are going to be in the, in the you know in the Caribbean somewhere for four days. Yeah, and you <laughs> like, know what? They're like everyone in the shut league up is and looking deal. at this. Like every like every player in the league is looking at this and probably sides with the Yankees on it. You know, they're they're saying of if this was they if do. this was me, of you know, if this do. were me, yeah. this, you know, we would feel the same way. So, of course, you know, it, I think for that reason, this isn't just like, well, yo, that's the Yankees being the Yankees here. Like they're not on their own island on this one. So, yeah, I mean, this will happen. It, it's going to be Dodgers and, and Angels for sure, and uh, yeah. the Yankees will get their way, and, and they'll, you know, a week later at the All Star break, we'll all get to you know drool over Stanton and Judge, and and they'll get their interviews, and all be well with the world. Yeah, exactly, but. Anywho, all right. Well, that uh, pretty much wraps it up for us for the, for tonight. Uh, Phillies have a big week ahead. Uh, three games starting Tuesday uh, with the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley. Uh, two night games. Thursday's game is a, an old-fashioned Wrigley afternoon game, which I love, um, and I won't miss that one. And then they finally come back home after this long road trip uh, for a weekend series with the Milwaukee Brewers, first place Milwaukee Brewers. Who got? They have some intriguing bats. In yeah, they're line. rolling and they can score in bunches. Yeah. So yeah, they can. That's going to be another another test for the Phillies. So uh, big series is coming. Big two big series coming up this week, and I'm sure next Monday when it's an off day for the Phillies, you and I will be uh, talking about it uh, some more and see where where this team yeah, is. Hopefully, we can be a little responded. bit more positive for the people out there. You know. <laughs> yeah. Hope, hopefully, we can be we can be more positive. But you know what, though, I'll tell you I something. Think we're fair man i i do i, I don't yes. think we're killing anybody here i think we're very very measured and and fair for the most part Maybe, yeah my velasquez thing might be getting a little outdated but uh other than that very fair yeah no we are we are fair and um uh but i i, I i'll tell you when things are things go bad it, it, it the energy the juices just flow a little bit better don't they yeah sometimes it's easier to do it when you're pissed off yeah <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely so uh, so that'll be it for us for this week don't forget to check out the other uh, shows on the Crossing Broad Network Crossing Broadcast with uh, Kyle Scott and Russ Joy uh, Snow the Goalie which we are behind a week uh, Russ Joy and I this is the second time we've been behind a week and I'll be honest here, I'm going to put it out there for you we are waiting for a very special guest from the Flyers and they keep pushing it off and it's it's driving me crazy I'm in constant communication with the team um, but uh, once we nail it down, it's going to be a big, big get for us. So uh, stay tuned. Snow the goalie will be back with Russ and I as soon as uh, the Flyers can confirm that uh, that guest for us. Um, and then there's our two soccer podcasts. It's always soccer in Philadelphia. With Kevin Kincaid um, and doesn't who joins him for that? Dave Zeitlin. Uh, that yes, right? that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, who I used to work with, by the way. Um, in a tertiary manner he worked for a sister newspaper but we were in this our stuff was in the same paper together very well Um, connected you're like the guy that i feel like you know everyone (laughs) i I know a lot of people yes and then there's always uh crossing broad fc uh with russ joy and phil kydell talking about european soccer at its finest so don't miss any of those fine podcasts here on the crossing broad network um and then uh, we'll be back with you next week so for bob wankel at bw crossing broad I'm Anthony Sanfilippo at Ant San Philly saying have a great week, everybody.